BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside, inside number nine? Not really. I'm Rhys Shearsmith. And I'm Steve Pemberton. We are the writers and performers behind the BBC Two comedy anthology show. For every episode in this new series, we'll be going behind the scenes and giving you an in-depth look into how the shows were created, what our inspirations were. We've literally given away every secret. Yeah, we've possibly said too much. Ruined we've ruined it. it. Ruined it. Inside, inside number nine. Download and subscribe now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for downloading Comedy of the Week. I'm Darren Harriet, your host and guide of the best comedy from BBC Radio 4. Here's this week's show. Perkins and welcome to Nature Table, the show that not only focuses on the fascinating field of flora and fauna, but also coincidentally contains the most F-words on Radio 4 since Martha Carney stubbed her toe on a hardback Eleanor Ferrante. <laughs> the world of natural history is full of amazing facts. For example, did you know that some spiders can fly on the currents of Earth's electrical field, which is both incredible and the reason I am never leaving the house again? <laughs> Eating a large amount of carrots can not only tint your skin orange, it can also get you thrown out of Tesco's, just so you know. (laughs) And pigeons have been taught to tell the difference between the paintings of Picasso and Monet, but somehow they still can't tell the difference between a statue and a toilet. Theatre at ZSL London Zoo. Now, London Zoo, of course, is the oldest uh, scientific zoo in the world, officially opened in 1828, but it took 20 years before the public finally got inside because those turnstiles can be a little bit tricky. (laughs) With me to sift through all the items on today's nature table is comedian, actor, and writer Felicity Ward, and bringing us delights for the table are marine biologist Helen Scales, ethnobotanist James Wong, and zoologist Lucy Cook. Let's start the nature-tastic show-and-tell. So let's see what we've got on Nature Table this week. Helen, we're going to start with you. Now, what have you brought for us? This large thing I'm holding in my hand um, is a 15... (laughs) (laughs) Clean it up, Helen. Can I just say, this is what us botanists think you zoologists do all the time. (laughs) Just pass around poo, have a look at it. It's very weird. It's not poo. It is a 15-million-year-old whale ear bone. <laughs> Tell me about the ear bone. I and mean, we have obviously bones, tiny bones in our ear, but how does this one work? Uh, so we also have an equivalent of this, um, but it's like the size of maybe a small marble, so it's definitely bigger in a whale. The cool thing about this is, this is really important for whale evolution. It helps it to hear underwater. So that's like a really key part of what whales did, because basically um, vertebrates, animals with backbones, began in the oceans, they were fish, and about 400 million years ago, some of them moved out, came onto land, evolved into all of us, mammals, amphibians, birds, reptiles, and then after like 300 million years, the whales' ancestors just had enough of land and decided to sod back to the ocean. So this is like one of the things that happened to vertebrate life. Did you read life. a diary, or how did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's all had enough of this. It's a very thick book, 300 million years. <laughs> so you can so... chart the evolutionary progress of whales from sea to land and in some species back to sea again yeah. by the development of their earbuds. That, that, that's a real key thing, yeah. So this massive bone basically helps them to hear because rather than air, it just kind of it directs the vibrations into their jaws and into their skulls and that's how they hear. Does that mean so... that when whales lived on land that the sounds would be more specific rather than just... Yeah, so exactly. Man, I, just, I feel so relaxed. Do that again. <laughs> oh, he's sleepy now. Yeah. Oh, it's nice. Yeah, and it's like it's everywhere around. You, and if you do stick your head in the water and a whale is singing, it does sound like it is coming from everywhere. Is it true that some whales have regional accents? It is true. <gasps> yeah, quite a lot of them do, actually. I want to hear yeah. a Cockney whale <laughs> right now. <laughs> so I should also say that my ear bone is a sperm whale Yes. and the sperm whales are one of the groups that have dialects um, they don't sound as beautiful that's probably a humpback I think you were doing just now is yeah that right? it was, I'm yeah. glad that you picked that <laughs> she's known for it, you're very specific aren't you um, yeah. that's actually most of my that's the Geordie one and you know it's the, <laughs> and you know it's the, the males that sing only. I didn't, yes, yeah. I mean, I absolutely knew that. Uh, <laughs> so the males, and we don't really know why, though, which is kind of cool. Uh, humpbacks, anyway. But um, sperm whales aren't as beautiful. They just kind of click, and it's more like Morse code. Okay. So their dialects are more like, you know, a different type of Morse code, which we still haven't figured out. Wow. We don't know what they're saying, but they are saying different things. Um, they don't want you to And, know. yeah, and there are, like, clans of them. There are these matrilineal clans, so the women... Oh. Uh, stay with the youngsters, the males kind of clear off after a few years. But all these different groups of female, like, lead uh, sperm whales will get together and they speak the same accent. How do they hunt sperm whales? How do they... So they also use sound for hunting. They have, like, they echolocate, like bats. Um, and so sperm whales hunt really deep down. They spend about three-quarters of their lives down at least 1,000 metres, maybe 2,000 metres, basically hunting giant squid. And it was thought for a while that they just would swim down and hang there and just wait for a squid to come by. But then when and hydrophones came along and you could stick them on a whale and, and also like motion sensors, so the kind of thing you'd get in your phone now. Um, we figured out that sperm whales like basically chase and swim after squid through the deep and they're firing sound. And when they get closer, the sound gets sort of more sound comes out and clicks and clicks trying to figure out. So they're listening to the reflections of that sonar, basically. Of the, of the, so their, um, their voice will bounce against a giant squid and come back again. Yeah, and so they have these like chase scenes and it's, I mean, they think they do this oh. handbrake turn to catch a squid. So, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they, they, they speed up and then they suddenly like sort of turn to the side and grab it. Is there a fact that when, when orcas chase like calves of sperm whales that the sperm whales click so loudly that it puts the orcas off? That is a possibility and another thing that has been spotted and filmed a couple of times is a sperm whale doing something else to defend itself, uh, which is Poonado, if anything. It's oh, like God, of course it is. Yeah. I've yeah. seen that movie. Poonado. <laughs> um, so they create a whirling geezer of feces. This is what zoologists do all yeah. the time. I, I... <laughs> well, for anyone listening who doesn't know about sperm whales, uh, well, you've learned a lot more now, but this is, this is what they sound like. Oh, that could just be the producer playing with some sellotape. <laughs> uh, but this is what a beluga whale sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> we 
should point out that I think that's a beluga whale that's mimicking humans. That is, that's right, yeah. So belugas, they're known as the canaries of the sea. Uh, they're another type of whale, which they just seem to like mimicking other animals and sounds and things, and they do mimic human voices. I think orcas do as well, actually. Um, Lucy, you've been out in the northwest coast of, of the States, haven't you, looking, uh, I believe, for whale poo. Is yeah, no, right? last week I was racing around trying to catch whale scat in a net. Gosh, that's you know, living all right. Yeah. I, I was researching for my new book and I was researching the fact that orcas go through the menopause, which is extremely unusual. They don't like to talk about it, right? <laughs> the, the menopausal females in killer whales become the wise old leaders of the clan. Yeah. Um, so we like that story. Am I right, sisters? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So how, but how do you study hormones in killer whales? Well, you've either got to try and get blood samples, which, you know, good luck with that, or you've got to collect their poo. Mm. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so I was with this woman whose job it is to collect the poo, but she's assisted by a dog that has been trained to sniff out no. the whale poo. Yeah. <laughs> Underwater? They do floaters, mate. <laughs> Did she just walk around with a plastic bag turned inside out on her? <laughs> uh, James, what have you brought to the nature table today? Sadly, nothing as exciting. So I've got this. Um, it's broccoli. <laughs> I know you guys went to the National History Museum. I went to Tesco. Year-old uh, sperm whale ear bone. You pull yeah. a floret of broccoli. Absolutely. Come on. Well, see, this is the thing, right? People consider plants as boring, passive objects, and like, there's 500 animal science students for every one of us plant science students. However, <laughs> like, broccoli can tell equally as an interesting story, right? Yeah. So, most children don't like broccoli. Some adults. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. There's a very good evolutionary reason for that. Human palates have evolved to find uh, the taste of bitter things unpleasant. And bitterness in the, the plant kingdom is often a sign of something being toxic. Plants have to do really cool things because they don't have the easy tricks that animals have, right? So they can't, like, <laughs> run away or hide or do all that boring stuff. So they come up with chemical weapons. So if you were to bite into, or an insect was to bite into this, or any other kind of predator, the, the broccoli plant starts to produce these bitter toxins at the site of cellular damage to ward things off them. And the really weird thing is, is that in our bodies, it actually has the opposite effect. So the chemical that's in broccoli that provides it with its partially its bitter flavor and part of its toxicity, the reason why children don't like them is this toxicity, our bodies react to that toxin by ramping up our detoxification enzymes. So if you eat loads of broccoli, it's been demonstrated that you have to drink significantly more coffee to get the same caffeine kick because your detoxification process has been ramped up by that. Um, so broccoli is fascinatingly weird. As we get older, we become less sensitive to those bitter flavors. Not all of us, some of us. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. But ironically, the broccoli is trying to kill you and it actually gives Gives you a bit of a superpower. <laughs> and, and of course, broccoli's been around for about 2,000 years, and it, it certainly tastes like that. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, an, it's an ancient veg, isn't it? Broccoli is basically a cabbage plant that has a mutation to produce these massive, massive flower heads, as is cauliflower. It's a mutant, is, poisonous, yeah. toxinous... <laughs> as a Brussels sprouts. And, you know, the really crazy thing, the toxin that's in broccoli is also toxic to broccoli. 
Um, it's... Can I just so, say, broccoli is an idiot. Yeah, yeah. so... The, the, no, it's ingenious. It's totally ingenious, all right? Because the toxin is toxic to the own plant cells, yes. it's only created at the site of cellular damage. So these two chemicals, and they're held in different parts of the cell. When that cell is broken into, the chemicals mix, like in a 90s glow stick... And that chemical reaction is created. So if you were to chop up broccoli and leave it for a few minutes, it has significantly more of that cancer-fighting or potentially cancer-fighting compound in it by literally just chopping it up and leaving it. And the same stuff is found in, like, garlic. Yes. Garlic also contains a different chemical, but it is a sulfur-based defence chemical. Does garlic hate itself as much as broccoli hates itself? Yeah, so you have to break garlic. If you put garlic in a garlic press, for example... Mm, I do. Then it produces loads of that compound. Have you ever had that, you know, thing from the 60s that my mum still weirdly makes? Uh, chicken with that four old, James. <laughs> well, I'm not, and I'm knowing. Um, uh, chicken with 40 cloves of garlic. You know, I love garlic, so I'm always, always like, ooh, that's going to taste great. It doesn't taste of garlic at all. And it's because the garlic cloves are put in whole and they're not broken up. Whereas just a single clove or even a tiny piece of a clove, if you blitz that or break it, you produce loads of the compound. Because it's upset with itself. Yeah, essentially. Like, the more you damage a plant, the more it wants to fight back. And in many instances, ironically, that gives you a benefit. I like that. These are like goth vegetables. (laughs) Just self-loathing. And the more you hurt them, the better poetry they write. Pretty much. That's why I like plants. I don't like people. I just like kind of bitter under, you know, like trying to be mean to you without you even knowing things. Uh, I need a fact sheet. I need a fact sheet. It's like so good. I need it broken down. I need sort of idiot boards. It's like when you read Lord of the Rings and then you get to the end of the book and you realise there's actually a family tree at the back and you're like, well, that would have been Um, Lucy, what have you brought for the nature table, please? So what I've brought for you, Sue... Oh, dear. (laughs) Would you like to hazard a guess? I don't want to touch that. (laughs) What is it? So this, I mean, I suppose it's fair to say they look like a pair of wizened testicles, don't they? Oh, you said it. Yeah. Um, And they are actually, they're not testicles, although in, in the Middle Ages they were often mistaken for testicles. These are, they belong to a beaver... (laughs) <laughs> the, the plot thickens now now <laughs> they're not a beaver's testicles they're beaver's anal glands great right? great yeah. great can i just say I think, I think you're going to be surprised by how it smells before i smell yeah. it i think beaver gland is the third wedding anniversary isn't it isn't it <laughs> paper cotton <laughs> Gland. I think that's right. Yeah. So I'm now going to smell a beaver's anal gland. <laughs> Ooh, life is good to me. Yeah. Right. What is actually going on? Doesn't smell it's like it. It's faintly floral. <laughs> Ooh, that, I tell you what, that's a well-douched beaver. That's what I'm <laughs> It smells sort of incense doesn't it? Like a hippie shop, basically. Yeah. My uncle so, smelled like this in the 70s. Well, <laughs> It's like old spice. You might want to ask some supplementary (laughs) questions. So the reason why these are so fragrant is because 
um, they contain a substance called castorium. Okay. And one of the modern-day uses of castorium is it's one of the sort of animal fixers in perfume. So it turns up in various different perfumes. It has that sort of leathery, kind of animal-y smell. Oh, God. You know, but I mean, whale vomit is also used as a... Yeah, I was going to say, know. we're going back to whales too, from they sperm whales. whale vomit in perfume still. Yeah. Well, you can't now because you're not allowed to catch sperm whales anymore. It's right. very hard mm. to make them vomit too. You've got to get your hand all the way in the back of <laughs> It is hard. But beavers were hunted to extinction in Europe for their anal glands because they were considered to be very valuable to medicine. So what do they think castorium could could cure what would be its major well, it, benefits it was in it, there's a fantastic um bestiary written in the 17th century that lists everything from earache to flatulence that it'll cure but the number one cure and the reason why it was in so much demand is it became famous as a cure for hysteria in women well it's about time somebody cured that <laughs> <laughs> Well, hysteria was one of these... It was, just, it was a made-up thing. It was, was a catch-all. You know, yeah, it was a catch-all for just basically being a woman. Yeah. Um, and, one day uh, and they course, will cure that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, is that there are some medicinal qualities to these glands because the beavers eat willow, and one of the compounds found in willow is salicylic acid, which is one of the compounds found in aspirin. So... Actually, you know, maybe there might be some truth in the fact that beaver glands could um, cure hysteria. So I, I tried. <laughs> what? <laughs> this story's taken a turn. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Alaska, I had a headache, I grabbed a beaver, rubbed it on my face. <laughs> I know. I was, I, well, I was halfway through writing my last book and I was feeling quite hysterical. So I thought, well, why not, you know, give it a whirl. Um, so I, I had a nibble. <laughs> I bought them on eBay. Can you oh. believe it? I can believe it. I can 100% believe that, yes. <laughs> so what happened? So first, really bitter, as you'd expect. Oh, James, you probably want to have a nibble of my glands now, don't you? <laughs> I kind of do, but not in front of all of these people. Yeah. <laughs> like it was coming out of every pore of my skin and the really awkward thing about it was is that I'd been invited that evening to a special (laughs) performance of Shirley Bassey um, recording her Christmas special and I got an opportunity to meet Shirley Bassey (laughs) and I was like belching these terrible leathery smells and I was just like oh my god I'm going to meet Shirley Bassey while stinking of a beaver's arse (laughs) (laughs) Which ironically made me feel quite hysterical, actually. (laughs) I didn't know about castorium being used in cosmetics because, well, I I don't like to boast, but uh, (laughs) I have been doing the voiceover for years. Have a listen. I'm Sue Perkins, and when my skin feels dry, I always use beaver gland secretion. (laughs) Because I'm worth it.
Because we're at London Zoo, uh, I thought it'd be good to chat to some of the nature experts who are on staff here and find out some of their favourite facts about animals and also to see, if I'm honest, if they can give me a deal on those novelty rubbers in the gift shop, which are completely <laughs> moorish. Uh, Dave, Dave, where is... Da- there you are. Hi, Dave. You're head of invertebrates, are you not? Uh, that's right. So yes, why so spiders? Why did they lure you in? Uh, well, far more fascinating than anything else in the zoo. That's the easy thing. Now, uh, spiders, of course, a, a large section of the population, my sister included, are deeply scared, which I believe is a, like a fight-or-flight reaction that we have in our ancient brain to crawly things. Is that right? Some people say that it's innate, but actually I think it's a learned behaviour, more than that, because small kids are not normally scared of spiders, but they kind of learn it more. That's true, yeah. And the thing is that there are far more people who are scared of spiders in places where there are no dangerous spiders. It is that <laughs> reaction to the way yes. in which they move <laughs> rather than danger per se. And we run a course here to treat people for arachnophobia called the Friendly Spider Programme. Oh, I uh, love that. Very successful. So we, what happens on the Friendly Spider programme? Uh, you have to <laughs> eat ten spiders in a row. <laughs> <laughs> it's knowledge about spiders, so cognitive therapy, first of all. Uh, what can they or can't they do? And we can cure that phobia within only three hours, is we use hypnosis. We work with a hypnotherapist, and uh, within... Literally, one afternoon, we can turn someone from a lifelong arachnophobia to actually liking spiders. Can you do that with, say, someone who has an issue with Michael Gove? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, it has to be an irrational phobia. as a Chilean rose tarantula. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I've, yeah, I've held one of those. And right. it was... I won't lie, but I love... I suppose I was a little scared, but I tried to stroke it, and the guy immediately went, don't touch the top. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> don't like that what, much. What there is, is that they're, they're hairy. So, if, uh, what, another thing is, we ask people what they don't like about spiders, and quite often they say, oh, they're hairy. It's the hair. Mm. But... We love animals that are hairy. Dogs and cats are hairy. They are. Yeah. Yeah, but so, you but think about the amount spider, of men that have to shave their chest for the same reason. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me. I love a rug. Yeah. But <laughs> What there is is that uh, spiders like that from the New World do have a patch of irritating hairs on the back of their abdomen. Uh, so that's what you don't want to touch because it can cause an irritation of the skin like nettle rash. Yeah, so I that's the reason. That. What's your favourite spider? Uh, do you know, I, I don't really have favourites because they're all so amazing. Um, oh, one, Daddy one, loves oh, all yeah. of his children. <laughs> oh, my God, he's opened the box up. Um, what I have got, <gasps> I've brought a show and tell as well. Uh, so this... <gasps> yes, mate. ...is uh, a oh, shed skin yes. of a spider. Oh. And, uh, is it alive? We haven't brought any live animals over here, but... Um, that Beautiful. is So spiders shed their external skeleton as they grow. Oh! Uh, yeah, so it's not dead and it's not alive. What do you mean it's not dead or alive? It's a zombie! <laughs> Just holding it up so everybody can see. So you're taking these things out of a wine cooler? <laughs> I mean, the size I'm, of his hand. I'm scared to even touch the box that that's in. It's the, yes, the size of Dave's hand. And what's that? This is called a salmon pink, after the colours of the hairs on the body. And it is one of the two biggest spiders in the world. So the Goliath spider's the other one. And those can get up to 28 centimetre leg span. Is that a South American spider? Yes, this one's from Brazil. No biggie, sorry. I know a bit. There you go. <laughs> Expert. So you have, you've got the barking spider in Northern Australia, which is another one of this type of spider. I suppose it's to do with tropical climates or hypertropical climates, is that right? Normally the bigger species are found in the the tropics, that's right. Get a room, you two. (laughs) (laughs) 
There's a bird eating spider, isn't there? Yeah, yeah there right. is. It's just yeah. that's that's messing with the natural order. Oh, isn't I love it. Really, you know? <laughs> I. I it, the fact that it's come out, you're right, James, out of a sort of basically a picnic camper has rearranged my mind. Um, <laughs> and they're even called things like chili and rose and salmon pink. And so you, you turn up, you see this, you well, think lovely, and then you open this. Yeah. Yeah, but sure, surely that's the right sort of receptacle to bring them out of. No, I'm now afraid chiller. of picnics just having yeah. seen it. Fortunate <laughs> thing is, we're in England and you don't ever need a cooler box, so it's fine. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Thank you so much, my love. Thank you so much. to do at least five times at any given buffet lunch it's time to return to the table now Helen what else have you brought in yes um I have got actually a few cone shells these are ones that could kill a human when they were alive so Mm. it's fine now I mean it's about an inch high yes it's about 700 species of cone snail and the biggest ones are literally the size and shape of a cornetto um so they're the big ones and these guys I mean they they didn't evolve Mm. to kill people but they eat fish are these found all over the world they're mostly tropical basically they they have modified teeth um which they fill with a whole cocktail of different protein-based toxins which they then fire at their prey including fish these are small like slow moving like uh, like a snail you'd find in your garden which are totally just say the fast moving snails have eluded me (laughs) (laughs) they're all slow they're so fast. Mm-hmm. But Can't they seem. still manage to eat fish, which is crazy. I mean, the fact that a fish should just be able to swim off. Um, but they're so fast, and they basically fire these incredibly powerful toxins uh, that just knock fish out. And they have this cocktail of, of different molecules that will just mess with their nervous system in such a way that the fish just doesn't have a chance. So if you want to have the same... I, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you wanted to replicate the, the level of toxicity of one of these things, uh, you'd need to gather together a whole bunch of other very toxic animals. You would need to lick a uh, poison arrow frog. Yep, D- done that. Done it. Yeah. Uh, I, have done, I have done that, actually. You would need to... <laughs> of course, Lucy. Oh, oh. <laughs> you genuinely? Yeah, yeah, you know, because when they're in the lab, they lose their toxicity because they sequester it. So I, the guy did say to me, you know, have a lick, and I was like, really? You know, but anyway, yeah. Don't you believed a man story. in a lab yeah. who said, don't worry, this toad has sequestered its toxicity. I just said, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know why they're toxic in the wild but not in the lab? And it becomes from what they eat. So they Mm. eat insects that have eaten plants. So just like the beaver earlier, they're not producing that toxin themselves. They're getting it from much cooler and more interesting living things, (laughs) which are plants. They take all the glory, but it's the plants to do the work. So we would have to, to get back to Helen's point, we would have to lick the toad. Okay, uh, you need to eat a piece of pufferfish liver, specifically. Um, Or their gonads as well. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a choice between the two. (laughs) (laughs) You need to be bitten by cobra and infested by clostridium bacteria. So all of those toxins are doing different things to your body. This one shell does all of that. It's like a Nutribullet. So I have a question, because I know nothing about animals, but I'm kind of obsessed with Jurassic Park. So when you said cone shell, that's the toxin that they use in Jurassic Park 3 to take down the dinosaurs. No, you know, I didn't know that because I haven't seen Jurassic Park. Well, you've been missing out. Um, And and they say, like, don't have an accident with a spear that, like, the South Sea cone shell venom is, because apparently it it attacks the nervous system faster than the nerve conduction velocity. I'm almost quoting it word for word. So you'd be dead (laughs) before you knew you had an accident. Is that true? Would you die before you even knew it had... 
maybe. I mean, they basically... I've just never had the chance to ask never anyone. Never had the chance. Yeah, well, I it's mean... time. We've got a live cone snail. Let's Here try it. <laughs> I mean, the kind of cool thing is cone snails genuinely are like providing really exciting and cutting edge new medicines. Uh, and one of them is a painkiller, a particular, I think it's called the magician's cone shell, has a toxin which basically uh, blocks pain signals really effectively for chronic pain. It works in fish, it works in people. Um, and dinosaurs. And dinosaurs, yeah. James, do you know that um, uh, that was one of the songs that my husband and I, we were going to play the Jurassic Park theme song once we got married? Yeah, my husband is an absolutely mad fan of Jurassic Park. At your wedding? Yes. So So you're in the bridal gear. (laughs) (laughs) No, on the way out, it was, no, it's a different bit of the music. Um, Was it the T-Rex bit? Yeah, the um, piece (laughs) of classical. Yeah, that bit. That's hard to do. None of it is cleared. We will never broadcast any of it. (laughs) (laughs) You can't afford it. Um, That's a great show and tell. Thanks, Helen. Uh, Cone snail toxins are also known as conotoxins. One conotoxin is a form of the hormone insulin, which cone snails use to knock out their prey with hypoglycemic shock, which was a tactic we used many times on Bake Off. That's all we've got time for from Nature Table. We've just time to thank my wonderful guests, Helen Scales, James Wong, Lucy Cook and Felicity Ward. And of course, thanks to London Zoo for having us. I promise I will not steal a spider monkey to take home. I w- don't check my bag. Stop it. It always moves like that. Get off it. Thank you for listening so much. Goodbye. Nature Table was hosted by me, Sue Perkins, and featured Felicity Ward, Helen Scales, James Wong and Lucy Cook. It was written by Kat Sadler, Catherine Brinkworth and John Hunter. The music was by Ben Mirren, the producer was Simon Nichols, and this was a BBC Studios production. Thanks for listening to the Comedy of the Week. We'll be back next week with another big slice of laughs from BBC Radio 4. Ooh, you better get your knife and fork. You want more comedy? Well, why not try the Friday Night Comedy Podcast? Subscribe to the podcast now on BBC Sounds. What are you interested in? And I mean really interested in. Really into box certificates. Pencils. Crinoline mania. So much so that if you see it, or hold it, or just think about it, then everything stops. And then, one day, it just vanished. Each week in the Boring Talks podcast, join me, James Ward, as I introduce a guest speaker to share their own fascination for a very niche subject. But what could it possibly be? From the personal joys of pencils and teletext to the expectant sounds of old computer games loading, every talk is a varied and surprising treat. Hear that? Lovely. The Boring Talks. Subscribe right now on BBC Sounds.